Where did it all begin? Is arguably one of the most quintessential questions that has gathered the ultimate curiosity of all humankind over millenniums. With some of the most brilliant explorations that human brain and instincts ever undertook, which flowed into the founding of disciplines and schools of art, ideas, understanding and technology alike that surround us now in our everydays that we most fittingly refer to as the evolution of our civilization. We're after tracing some milestones of this ideal quest for this season of Zeroing In, the science podcast. Welcome to the fourth season, To a City. For the first episode, and following across a timeline across millennia, we set out to converse with an archaeologist to help us set the record straight by delving as far into the past as we can literally trace. Professor Kalyan Chekhar Chakrabarty is a researcher, excavator, and post-excavation analyst who specializes in biomolecular archaeology and archaeological geochemistry. Professor Chakrabarty pursued his bachelor's in anthropology from the University of Calcutta and then went on to pursue his master's degree specializing in ancient Indian history and culture from the Deccan College. Following this, he pursued his doctoral work at the University of Toronto, wherein he conducted really interesting research in the field and as an analyst as well. Following his postdoctoral stints across various institutes and field sites, he is currently an assistant professor at the Ashoka University and is associated as a postdoctoral researcher with the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History. We discussed with him on fundamental ideas about the understanding of human history from anthropological and archaeological points of reference. The names of knowns while tracing the story of the development of human civilizations from scientific perspectives and, perhaps more importantly, naming the unknowns that still beg for an understanding of where we belong. Professor Chakraborty's patient art of storytelling combined with the extensive understanding of the nuances of the field made the conversation extremely lively and beautifully lined with treasures of fundamental ideas spilling into further ardent curiosity trails that we promise to follow along really soon. Your hosts for this episode are Muskan Garg, who pursued her bachelor's in history from Delhi University and is currently pursuing her master's in liberal arts from Ashoka University. And I am Naman Jain for the fourth season of Zeroing In, the science podcast. So first off, I really just wanted to ask you about the broadest excitements of the field. I mean, when we talk about archaeology, the first thought is about all things old and ancient and how actually humans started with anything at all, right? Uh, but admittedly, there's really little common knowledge that exists in the society in general that is solidly based on facts and scientific ideas, I guess. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you about the broader excitements for you when you were probably in school or college or how did it really begin for you? Okay. Uh, before I begin with my journey, I think uh, one thing that needs to be debunked at the very first is that archaeology is rarely something that you see in the movies. We do work with mom- mummies, but then we don't fight with mummies for sure. We don't, uh, we don't go hunt for treasure. And when we find something shiny, we don't, we don't just take it and run. 90% of the archaeologists are poor fighters, so we don't go and fight with normal people or, or anybody for that matter. So so it's it's like any other academic discipline that you can imagine. It's a very well-established discipline. It it definitely started as a treasure hunt, uh, but then at this 21st century, in this 21st century, it is a very well-developed field. It's like any, any other physics, chemistry, biology, whatever field you think. It has uh, its own sets of questions that we ask, that archaeologists generally ask. It has its own, own sets of methodologies that we use. And it also has its own th- sets of theoretical understanding. So that kind of theories we use. Me coming to archaeology was kind of accidental and, you know, kind of a destiny. I never had a plan to, you know, come to archaeology. And I think when the movie like Mummy get released, I was pretty adult at that point of time. So it was not that I, I saw a movie and I, then I got influenced to do archaeologists. During my graduations, I did anthropology. So I, I had a BS degree in anthropology and there, and I, that was the first time I got introduced uh, something remotely with archaeology. That was, uh, so we had a course on prehistoric anthropology. So we learned about human evolution and, and you know, got associated with uh, material culture that generally ancient humans have used. But then also, me coming to anthropology was accidental uh, or like unintentional because I didn't score a lot 
well in my uh, plus two. So that was the safest choice for me. So I took anthropology. Uh, I liked uh, prehistoric anthropology, but then I was more interested in sociocultural anthropology. But then I actually tried to think like, when did I actually decide to go into archaeology? And I couldn't think the exact time or exact thought that I had. But I think it was like kind of grown into me. And then I thought, okay, let's do a master's in archaeology. And then I did master's in archaeology. And then pretty much at that point of time, I had nothing else to do. So I did my PhD uh, because I, I wasn't sure of, uh, you know, writing uh, competition, uh, competitive exams and go for government jobs. I hated that from the very beginning. So that was not something I wanted to do. So I, I didn't want to go for banking. Uh, so I think yeah, this is the safest choice. Let's go for a PhD. And, and then I went for a PhD. Now I do archaeology and, you know, often in India, it's, it's kind of, over the world, it's like archaeology is either associated with history uh, or it is associated with anthropology. So either it is part of humanities or it is part of social science. In India, it's kind of in the middle. So we have separate archaeology departments. It is also part of anthropology departments and in some parts of India. It is also, also part of history departments. So we have like, uh, you know, uh, best of all kind of a scenario over here. So my association with history was like really poor. The two subjects that I hated during my school was history and chemistry. Uh, those are like, I never scored good in any of those subjects and I just read to pass. And then it's called destiny that now I'm teaching in a history department and doing research in archaeological chemistry. So, so this is how I basically came to archaeology. But then, you know, when I started doing archaeology, there was a lot of fun. It was, it was not a very regimented uh, subject that you would otherwise think. There was a lot of scope to think. There was a lot of scope to, you know, do the kind of work you want to do in your own way. So there was not not prescribed way that you know you have to do certain things in a certain way so you can choose the way you want to do you can choose the topic you want to do and archaeology being so huge okay so pretty much anything that a human do today they have also done it in the past so anything uh, that you can associate with human you can also associate with past human so you know the scope of research is extensive and then there was this puzzle sol solving thing that was uh, pretty exciting for me is that, you know, if you love to solve puzzles and, and if you get excited, uh, not only solve puzzle, but also find that there is a puzzle and then I have to solve it. So that was that was quite interesting for me. And, and then that's how I got stuck into archaeology. And I think I think that was the best decision I have ever made in my life. And I thoroughly enjoy the work I do. Well, when you say this, it, it actually sounds like it was not calculated at the beginning, right? I mean, as and how we see people going about their career choices right now, it's extremely calculative that, okay, this is the step and then this is the clear step and then further and further and further, at least in the academic side. More so, I think in artistic side, that is probably how it works. But in academic side, when someone is taking things up, it's extremely calculated or so it seems at least. So that I, I imagine wasn't the case for you, right? No, and, and I'll, I'll give you an archaeological answer to this question. As archaeologists, we often contradict an evolutionary interpretation of human behavior, that humans are generally non-calculative. Okay. We don't always take calculative decisions. And most of the breakthroughs we had as, as a humankind were uncalculative. So I'm pretty sure that we take as many uncalculative decisions as we take calculative decisions, and they're all part of your life. So yeah, I'm happy that I haven't taken a calculative decision. <laughs> Indeed, but also uh, the ideas that we were discussing while diving into the topic for the conversation uh, were all over the place and about all sorts of things. And what boggled our minds was how little we know as common people. And perhaps we do not have any clue about if there really is, after all, a conclusive story of the human civilization and how did it really start? Or if there really is a point from which you can you can from which you can clearly and credibly say that this is where we know things from. Uh, would you like to briefly walk us through that and tell us about on how far back can we go in the idea of the story of civilizations and from which point on do we really know? And is there something like a common story of things from there on? I'll try to answer it. So if I, if I lose my way and go somewhere, somewhere else, bring me back and say, you know, okay, you are, you're going a little further from the question. So, as archaeologists, we have found things, we have studied things, we're finding things and we're studying things. Our ideas are changing. So our ideas or the theories that we have built over these years are not static. So, so they, are not, uh, they are not the truth. 
So there are theories, so they are changing, there are concepts, there are ideas, there are hypotheses that we build. So, so they are all subject to taste and they're changing. Okay. In general, we don't see a civilization pre-Neolithic era. Okay. Okay. But there is a caveat to it. So why do we say that we don't see a pre-Neolithic era civilization and, and, and what time period generally we call Neolithic? Okay, I'll be using a lot of these terms. Those are directly taken from European archaeology. Okay, from, based on European archaeology, a Neolithic uh, period some came somewhere around twelve thousand to ten thousand BC. Okay, or twelve thousand years ago, just to make it simple. And uh, if I made this, this period is dependent on on, on the kind of human uh, evolutionary period, basically that we were at. Over. Yeah. So, so how do you identify that period? Is that your question? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Neolithic is, is the time when agriculture and domestication began and we start seeing cultivated species, cultivated plants, okay. cultivated animals. The stone tool technology also changed. So Neo is a new, Lithic is the stone tool technology. So it's a new tool, stone tool technology. So now we, we see tools that are often used to you know, clear forest and, and cut trees. Very broad definition of it. We also start seeing settled village. Now, whether there were no previous settled village, yes, there were. And I'll come to that point. So this is a general idea that, you know, uh, with the agricultural production, there came surplus. With the surplus, there came civilization uh, because now we have a lot of resources. So generally, civilizations post-dates uh, the Neolithic period, the invent of agriculture. That was the idea. Okay. Now, recently, not recently, but um, it's been quite, quite a few years that archaeologists have found very complex societies in North America. Those are non-agriculturalist. So they are hunter-gatherer, but they used to build monuments. There were a lot of artworks that they have done, so which are monumental art, artworks, like not, not a monument in the sense that, you know, they were superstructures or something like that. They were artworks, a lot of artworks, that new artworks that they made. And they were monumental in nature, like they're huge, they're huge. And, and you need a lot of people, a lot of resources, a lot of labor planning, a lot of labor management. So if I may, uh, these artworks are, sorry, but uh, these artworks are, for instance, in terms of like structures or in terms of drawings or in terms of... So they are like circular to semicircular structures, semicircular mounds, let's say mounds. So they were artworks, okay, okay. so they, they collected and accumulated mound and, and given it a structure. So if you see an aerial view, it will look like four series of C's. So like semicircles okay, okay. kind of a thing. Okay. Or Stonehenge. This just give you an example of a Stonehenge is a is a similar kind of a monumental structure. Okay, okay, uh, okay. but it was made of stone. Uh, it is stones that were erected, and those were lands that were accumulated to create the structure. So then we see uh, this kind of settlements coming around, and those were seasonally occupied settlements. So, and archaeologists we generally still don't quite understand why they were made in the first place. It is likely that there were some sort of ritualistic activities were going on, some sort of ceremonies were going on. It could be like a seasonal ceremony, you know, where different tribes come together and then they perform a celebration together or perform some sort of ritual together and that structures are part of that ritual. We don't know. But then those structures clearly indicate that they were complex, they were not simple. Okay. Can we call them civilizations? No, they, we cannot definitely call them civilizations. But they are, they are inherently complex, uh, more complex than archaeologists have identified hunter-gatherers in general. Okay. And then generally our understanding of this sort of subsistence and the kind of social structure that you need to maintain similar kind of a, a subsistence pattern were primarily coming from the analogies that we have taken from the Bushmen or from the uh, you know, um, aboriginals of Africa. Okay, at that time, we had very little knowledge about the aboriginals from Australia, as well as the aboriginals or Indians in that, that the Indians of America. But then when we have those information, then we see that, you know, a hunter-gatherer forager can be as complex as any modern society. And it's not that, you know, you need a very rudimentary and a very uh, chiefdom to a very heterarchical social structure in order to maintain that subsistence. Right. So they could be as complex as them. And then, you know, and we were like, you know, it was not that, you know, they were only exploiting resources, which are need for the immediate requirement. So what does that mean is that when you have agriculture, you have storage, 
you produce more than you need and that extra becomes your resource that you generally exchange for whatever things you want in your life. Okay, that's even today is the case that we produce more than we need and that's the current economy. But in, in hunter-gatherer economy, we had a belief that, you know, uh, that's a very need-based economy. That, you know, I will only hunt an animal and, and I'll only exploit as much as I can consume. Obviously, there were no storage. Obviously, there were no refrigerator. So, if you kill a deer, you have to eat it. Or there is no point of uh, killing a deer. But then, and, and then because there was no ability of storage. And, and there's also a limited resources that are available in the forest. Like, you don't have billions of deer in a forest. And, you know, when uh, your entire diet is based on deer, it is pretty easily that you'll exploit all the deers and the forest will be empty. And that was one of the reasons that hunter-gatherers were moving from areas to areas. They were seasonally moving or they're moving with the herds that they had. And the surpluses can be used for various other purposes than just meeting, meeting your caloric need. Okay, you have surpluses that you can use for religious purposes. You have surpluses that you can use for feasting. You have also surpluses that you can use to show your supremacy. So the leader can come, the elite can generate from those kind of surpluses. You know, I can throw a party just to show. And you, even you see it in, in the modern days, you know, how often you go to a party and you see, you know, oh, this party is kind of a show off. You know, it's just showing off how much money he has, he's showing off furniture, showing off food and all this stuff. So the showing of thing was there even, even in the ancient time. And these resources were kind of the source that you'd use to show off. And would you call these ideas primitive? Well, likely not. They were, they were enough complex ideas. They were complicated thoughts. And, and they were the basic units that you need to develop a civilization. Okay. Now, when we call a civilization a civilization, it does not mean that, you know, there are definitely elites within the civilization. There are definitely commoners within the civilization. But within the civilization, there are also various economies that are going on at the same time. There are agriculturists, there are economists, there are pastorals, uh, there are craft producers, there are also hunters and gatherers that they were constantly, uh, you know. So coming back to the point, I said, no, I'll, I'll go, uh, uh, you know, I'll just spread my wings. But then coming back to the point, uh, the concept of civilization, the modern concept of civilization that we have is definitely a post-Neolithic thing. So we don't have a pre-Neolithic or civilizations that were, you know, 14, 15, 16,000 years old. There could be, uh, there could be, but we don't have uh, that idea yet. We don't have that evidence yet. Now, uh, the absence of evidence is not necessarily uh, the evidence of absence, right? So, so we don't have that, but we may surely have it at some point of time. For history, there is someone who is telling you the story. There is a written record. Like some form of a story is coming to you. There are folklores and stuff like that. Uh, if you're working with modern history, you have living memories of, of those, uh, of those uh, events. But when you're going back in time, right? I think the longest memory that I have ever heard in my personal experience when I was working with the indigenous people from North America, uh, they have a living memory of close to a few thousand years. Okay. Because that information has been passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation. So there are people who tell you the story of those years. But then when you are talking about 200,000 years, 300,000 years, 100,000 years, 50,000 years, even 10,000 years, there's no one else to tell you the story. So the story you have to reconstruct from the material or from the archaeological material that we find. So even though you think that, you know, oh, we, you have been excavating that site forever or Harappan, Harappan sites were getting excavated in India for like over 100 years now. So don't we have all the answers? No. Uh, you have to ask the tool that we find to tell his story or her story or its story. You have to find the pot to tell its story. So, you know, and, and then we have to let them speak and, and then only we'll be able to reconstruct it, right? Because there's nobody telling us the story. So, you know, and it takes time. It takes methodological development. It, it takes advanced scientific techniques. It also takes very strong theoretical understanding or theoretical regimes as well. And, and as well as, you know, a lot of work, a lot of experimental work, a lot of ethnographic work, a lot of understanding of human behavior in general. Right. So it's, it's a very complex process. So I don't know where I was, but uh, what was my point? But, but that's what it is. It's like it's, it's complicated.
uh, just a short note given that you mentioned uh, dating using fossils uh, can you tell us more about that about what scientific or technical details it involves really when you when you actually are doing it uh, there is not really very clear information about the details available uh, or details that are involved in context of what is done at present and also if there are any alternative ways apart from the primary ones that that that, that exist in the common knowledge i guess so that's uh, so exactly like dating plays a huge role in archaeology because we need to know how old things are and that has been the primary goal of any archaeologist at any point of time how old is this object and we are fascinated about it. there are broadly two ways of identifying an age of something okay and then as you come closer to the modern days the dates are more precise as you go in the past the dates are more wide okay let's say uh if you date a harappan site before i come to the dating different kinds of dating uh if you if you talk about harappan harappan site so a date plus minus 50 years is fine that's the 100 year range okay so they say 200 uh, 2300 plus minus 50 years is the date a radiocarbon date that's fine like within 100 years but when we talk about very old dates then we are talk about you know 1.5 billions plus minus 200000 years okay that's the range of dates we can produce because we are going further in time the most precise date we can do is using radiocarbon right the c14 dating which is very popular but it has its limitation we cannot date anything older than 50000 years so that's where radiocarbon dates end we cannot date anything older than 50000 years within radiocarbon or ams dates then we have to depend on other geological dates so say for example osl date uh, uh, thermoluminescence dates potassium argon date there are earth magnetism date all these sorts of date which would directly date the sediment that an object was found so you can either date the object or you can date anything that is associated with the object so radiocarbon date is often associated with the object so you layer date the layer based on the radiocarbon either from the charred remains botanical remains or animal remains or any organic remains for that matter then when you go back in time then you mostly date the sediment on which that particular object or particular fossil or particular tool has been found okay now if you find a fossil there are ways you can also date that particular fossil obviously using geological method so it not be that accurate like like 7 million 300000 for uh, you know 450 years not that kind of a calendar date but it's a it's a general like let's say 7 million plus minus 300000 years so this kind of date you can do of the fossil and then with the associated fossil when you have a fossil then you have associated finds so there are now ways that you can date a stone tool okay so so basic idea of dating a stone tool would be it's, it's again all luminescence dating all different sorts of luminescence dating so any anything and everything absorbs light so it's a very common way of dating now apart from the radiocarbon everything and anything absorbs light and then at certain radiation it emits the light okay a good example would be when you drive during the night you see all those stickers that kind of glitters and then when right light reflects on it it glitters right but when there is no light you will also see it's glittering maybe to a lesser extent but it's still glittering so that's the time when it's emitting the energy that it absorbed in the form of light so it's it's still emitting the light now by calculating the emission of that light you would be able to say how long this is emitting the light or when was the last time it got exposed to the light okay that is the primary funda of luminescence dating all sorts of luminescence dating whether it's a, by light or by heat whatever or and and there is paleomagnetism and i'll come to that later okay so this is a luminescence dating so what you can do let's say you have taken a stone tool okay you have taken a stone Now the stone got exposed at certain time when the stone was built. Uh, you know, some volcanic activity happened and the stone get formed, or or some other processes geological when the stone get formed, and that's the time the stone surface got the light. So if you date the stone, it will tell you the time when the stone came into existence. Okay. Now you flake the stone. Okay. Take a flake out of the stone. Now that surface that you created gets light again now. So now it is absorbing the light. now you date if they you date the light emission from that surface that would tell you when the flake was taken up not when the stone was formed does that make sense because it kind of resets the clock now it get exposed to the light so it resets the clock okay 
so that's how you date it that's the same how you also date the sediment mostly the quartz crystal and and i think feldspar that are there in the sediment you date them is the same the same concept is that when the when that particular particle was exposed to light the for the last time and then it gets buried and then it stays in the dark so no exposure happens and then you re-expose them to a certain light in the laboratory to kind of understand the emission rate and then you'll know when it was the last time it got uh, the light got emitted or light got uh, reflected on that particular object uh, or the particular particle uh, and it can be quite uh, you know good kind of a dating like in terms of its range uh, the modern samples would give you like 20 30 years of error which is pretty good but the older samples would give you a slightly larger error range but it's still in a within a good frame and then there is paleomagnetism what is paleomagnetism you know the north north and the magnetic field of the earth is changing so you know the north is turning to south and the south is turning to it's always changing so the sediment when it was formed would also indicate that current magnetism of that earth when it changed and and there was certain time that geologists have identified when that shift has happened and using that paleomagnetism that measuring uh, the magnetic field of that particular particle you would know uh, kind of get a sense of when this thing might have happened that would also help you to identify the date and then there are obviously global events you know uh, there was an earthquake that put a uh, a layer of a tectonic there was a tectonic movement and the layer from the lower geological level came on top and then you find a hand axe underneath that layer you would know okay this time that geological thing has happened so this is definitely earlier or lower than that there were uh, um, volcanic eruptions so there would be ash the dating the ash you would know if something you find underneath the ash then it is older than the ash if you find something younger than the ash, then it is younger. Off top of the ash, then it is younger than that. So these are kind of the basic methods of dating. So yeah, if you you go deep into the time, the dating kind of gets complicated, and we are still trying to figure out best ways of dating. So if you find a charcoal uh, which is more than fifty thousand years old, you cannot date it. It's pretty much useless at that point of time. Now that we are discussing the technical aspects of the field of archaeology, so. My question to you is a day in a in a field, like how do you do a field work? Like what is the process of, you know, selecting an archaeological site? What methods go in the exploration, excavation? What tools do you use? So if you can just shed some light on that. Okay. So there are three kinds of archaeologists in general or a mixture of the three. One is definitely who goes to the field, does exploration, excavations and all sorts of field archaeology. Uh, then there are lab archaeologists who would be spending most of their time in the lab. They would do some sort of field work, but even if they don't go for field work, they'll get samples and analyze the samples. Nowadays, I'm doing most of that. Okay. And then there are theoretical archeologists who would who doesn't need samples, who doesn't need uh, go to the field, or may can go to the exploration, but then they would mostly talk about developing theoretical understanding of the subject. And their lives would be very different, okay? Uh, but I'll tell you the most exciting life is definitely of a person, of an archaeologist who is be in the field. Okay. Now, when you be in the field, there are I, either of the two things you are doing, either you are exploring or you are excavating. Now, excavation is destruction in its nature. Okay. We are destroying a site. However, systematically we do it, it's a destruction. Okay. I say that this is the best method to excavate. After 10 years, somebody will come and it's like, this guy even didn't know how to excavate and he destroyed the complete, complete, completely complete destroyed the site. Uh, we scold people even today that, you know, <coughs> this guy in like 1960s excavated that site and he hasn't recorded anything because that was the best method available at that time and they didn't know about this. So whichever way you do it, however scientific it is, it is wrong and it is a distraction. So we prefer not to excavate. Okay. In general, archaeologists prefer not to excavate, not only because we are very concerned about preserving archaeology, it's a very costly affair. Okay. It needs a lot of money, it needs a lot of funding, archaeologists are poor in general. So in general, we try to avoid excavation as much as we can. Even we excavate, we excavate very small number of times. Exploration on the other hand is a very big deal because you can gather a lot of information without even excavating a site. and and that information can be gathered by collecting what is available in the site, doing some GPR surveys, so which is ground penetrating radar survey, uh, magnetic surveys, and all sorts of surveys, digging small pits and stuff like that. So these are different activities archaeologists would do. Now, 
I'll tell you a, a day of an explorer. Okay. In in a very general, in a very simple sense, not in a sense that you would expect uh, that some um, Bollywood director would come and say, "I need the story." No, that's not the case. That's rarely the case. <coughs> so somebody would go to a remote location, okay, wherever it is. So probably the nearest uh, village or city would be like a few kilometers. So most of the time, you would. Uh, go to a forest area or a river bank you would primarily locate the areas where the high chances of finding sites so what are the high chances next to a river because it's a water source so not only human animals are also attracted to water so that's the place where you'll find sites where do you find raw materials if you're looking for stone age sites where do you find good raw materials okay so you'll go and and find sites there where do you find enough resources like animals and plants and stuff like that that's where you are expecting to find sites so these are some of the locations and there are many other uh, criteria that you would look for uh, elevations is one of them temperature is one of them so there are certain places which is more favorable by human certain places which are not more favorable by human but even in the periphery there is a very strongly developed human culture right now so don't underestimate that in any sense but coming back to the point is that there are certain areas where you are expect to find human being depending on your research question whether you are looking for a stone age site you are looking for a, a you know a village site most of the village sites in india or the post neolithic sites are continuously occupied so alluvial plain is a great place where you want to live because you want to cultivate and that's the best land you have uh, you know that's the best place to raise your animals and stuff like that you are a herding community you would go to places like kach and gujarat or they are little drier but you know have a expansion of grassland that's the best place you can live uh, and then you know haryana say for example give you an example has been occupied for centuries and thousands of years and people are still living there and it's a continuous occupation continuous occupation so but then stone age people would prefer certain areas where there are enough resources you know uh, next to the river where animals would come they would hunt uh, and all sorts of so so we'll go to that place very generally an archaeologist day start very early so when i so before i joined ashoka during my postdoc and phd time i was also working as a cultural uh, as a field director for a cultural resource management company so just to give you a brief of cultural research they are pretty much a salvage archaeology company who would salvage archaeological material before any sort of construction happens okay so our job would be to go to the field collect whatever is there come back and then the field is ready for any sort of construction uh, so my day would let's say during the field when i was there my day would start around 4 am i get ready by 5:30 am then i leave my home by 5:30 am i had to drive 150 kilometers one way start excavation at 8 am continue my excavation till 5 am and then i'll be back home by 7 7:30 8 pm and then i'll just be dead as as hell but then in the field uh, in india the excavations are primarily done by laborers that you hire uh, for doing all this uh, excavation work asi generally hires primarily laborers uh, often universities do a little bit of excavations by themselves again because we are poor people and we don't have a lot of money so most of the time students will excavate and then the excavation kind of academic excavations are slow okay there would be you may take like a month to excavate a centimeter of soil but savage archaeology is fast because you have to savage whatever is there as quickly as you can so you will be moving tons and tons of dirt all day just to excavate whatever is there so you will be digging and and in north america there were no laborers so we were the laborers so field directors and field technicians and sometimes dirts are very heavy so it's a it's a very highly laborious job and then so that would be mostly the mostly the case and then extremities of weather is something uh, that is very problematic uh, i remembered excavating sites starting from so when we excavate start our season it would be around 20 degrees then it goes all the way up to 40 41 degrees even in canada okay so it's you know it's a cold country but it it can be pretty hot in uh, in summer even in germany you would know that it's in summer it gets pretty hot uh, so it would be in in 40s and then we'll excavate till the ground freezes Okay, when we cannot dig anymore, it's, the soil is that hard. So you put a shovel, it will just bounce back. It, so that would be a daytime temperature of let's say minus two, minus three, uh, with knee height of snow, and you remove the snow, and then you excavate, and it's wet. It's wet and cold. In India, I remember excavating a site in Haryana in the month of May. 
and June. In the field, 10 minutes, go to the tent, drink, charge, come back. In the field, 15 minutes, go to the tent, drink, charge, come back. And then there is exploration. So most of the exploration are done in the month of summer. It's just because, you know, that time, you know, fields are open. There are no uh, agriculture going on. And then you can th see things on the surface. It's not raining. So there are less grass and stuff like that. It's, it's a better weather in that sense. 40 degree, 45 degree, you have to walk 10 kilometers, 15 kilometers a day easily. Uh, so that would be a day. But then, you know, it's rewarding in a sense. You will find all sorts of things. You will find nature in a very different way that you have never experienced. And, you know, if you ask me, would you love to go field? I'll love to go field every day, every day, because it's, 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 it's so fun over there because, and again, like it's a teamwork, archaeology is teamwork. Like you'll rarely find an archaeologist doing his research in a closed room. It's not possible. Yes, there are obviously, but it's a teamwork. So you'll meeting, you'll be meeting people. It will be a fun workplace. You'll have fun. Can you imagine like you're excavating and finding a 7,000 years old fossil in your hand? It's, it's, uh, it's so rewarding at that sense. So all this exploration and, you know, you find new site, a completely new site. You explore unreachable areas that there are caves and things that you cannot reach there and, and things like that. And sometimes they would do all, all sorts of other, you know, exploratory circus that we call is that, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to reach areas that you have to go. Uh, and then you find all this weird stuff. I remember finding a monitor lizard inside my blanket in one of the field works. So I, I was actually tired and I came and I slept on my blanket and I saw something is moving behind my back. I was like, what is that moving? And then I hold it from top of my uh, my blanket and when I removed the blanket, there was a baby monitor lizard. I was like, great. Uh, scorpions, every time you'll find hundreds and thousands of scorpions. You move a stone, there's scorpion. So yeah, nature at one point of time, you'll be like, oh, that's snake, that's fine, kind of a thing. Um, and then there'll be people like I've heard people telling stories that they encounter tigers, they encounter uh, all sorts of wild animals that are kind of, you know, preserved species that you don't see quite often. You see only in the jungles and stuff like that, cheetahs. And so, yeah, that would be a general day in the field. It's like a lot of digging all day and then a lot of fun in the evening uh, because you have basically nothing to do. So, yeah, it's a very nice experience with wildlife. And then archaeology. When archaeology is there, then the wildlife is a definite bonus. <laughs> Before we dive into the research ideas, just wanted to make a small detour and ask you, given that you have these things that you work with every day, right? I'm quite convinced that your personal experiences in your everyday life must be heavily affected by it. Is it? <laughs> if so, I mean, how are your general travel stories like? Or do you really look out for like archaeologically relevant stuff when you travel? And how does your personal life get affected by these academic ideas that you exercise on a daily basis? So I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Now, after so many years of experience, you know, um, whenever I look into anything, I look from an academic perspective, right? Even uh, so I look for archaeological stuff. I, you know, I would just look at you and look into your behavior and how you're behaving so that I can infer something and apply to my research and kind of stuff. So I was going to Europe. I was in a plane. Okay. And there was a girl next to me and, and then we we're sitting I, I haven't chat with her or anything and then she was on the window seat and I was on the aisle seat and, and the window was open and then we were going and I believe there was either the north it was very close to the north pole or there was some horseshoe lake or there was some geological feature that was very interesting to me and I was like oh did you see that it's, it's, it's like this kind of feature and something I forgot the entire story of it and she was like what I was like, oh, no, forget about it. So it's, it's kind of like sudden things you, you are so excited about because why, why are they saying those nerdy things to me? But, and, and you imagine like you don't know the person and you suddenly start a conversation with that. So, uh, so, so yeah, these kind of things like, you know, you, you always get in a conversation which is very archaeology related. And sometimes that can make people feel awkward, right? right? I mean, like, why would somebody come and tell, uh, you know, you show me a picture and then I was like, uh, do you see the nice picture? I said, yeah. Do you know what kind of frame is that? I was like, yeah, I asked you to see the picture, not to look into the frame. So, so yeah, like after being in the field so many years and, and these things happen and then you ask weird questions and stuff like that. But then it also shapes me quite a lot because, you know, being in a team uh, makes you a great team player. So I can pretty much work with anybody 
has also exposed me to different parts of the world, different culture. I also look into culture in a very different way. I also look into human behavior in a very different way. It shapes me as a human being. Like you pretty much put me anywhere in the world, I'll survive. So this is kind of what it does to you. Uh, but then uh, I probably have the worst back. I have wounds in my fingers, which are permanent now. And I have tans in my body, which are like few years old and they're still there. So, so there, are, there are things like that. That also some tolls that you have to go through. So, uh, Professor, can you tell us about your research? Like, what did you do your PhD on? What area did you work on? And can you elaborate on that? Okay, so that's a very big question. Okay, now you want to summarize my six years into 10 minutes. Let me try. Okay. You can take your time and just explain it to us. Bro broadly, I work in the Indus Valley region. Okay. Now, when I say Indus Valley, I know I, it will make some people upset. Like, why are you calling Indus Valley when all the Indus Valley sites are not in the Indus Valley? There are problems with nomenclature. Let's not go in there. Uh, there are problems. In the civilization or Harappan civilization is the civilization that I work on. Or a part, portion of that is where I work. My study area was Gujarat. So I did my PhD in Gujarat uh, on a very small settlement. Okay. So when we talk about Harappan civilization, the names would come to your mind is like Harappa, Mohenjo-daro. Uh, to some people who are into these things, they will think like Dhola, Vira, Rakhigari. These are huge, like big cities. Okay. I, I work on a small small settlement which is three and a half hectare big, probably occupied for a few hundred years, not more than that. There are a few people, maybe 50, 60 people living at their settlement, not more than that. Uh, they were not rich people, they were poor people like me living in there. So, so very common people settlement that I worked on. I try to be away from the shinier parts of archaeology and then work with the local people. I think the fun is there. Anyways, that's the site or, or the time period that I worked on. Uh, broadly speaking, I work on a very specific time period that is around 2300 BC to 1900 BC. In, in broader Harappan archaeological sense, that would be the late mature Harappan period. So that's the time. So that's definitely the peak of the Indus civilization or the Harappan civilization and, and also towards the end of the peak of the Harappan civilization. So when I started my research, I, I primarily wanted to understand what was the subsistence of Harappan people at that time. Now, was am I the first person to asking that question? No, I was not the first person asking the question. There has been research going on on that for many years. But then you can reconstruct the subsistence pattern of any settlement or any people from multiple sources. Okay. So I chose a different source. That source has never been chosen before. So I wanted to choose that source so that we can get some other information than what we already have. So generate new information. So that was the broader question that I have. Okay. Now that does not involve the theoretical interpretation that goes behind identifying the subsistence pattern. Okay. Now it is fine if I tell what you were eating, but it is more exciting when I tell why you were eating that. Okay. So now there is a why part of to that question. Uh, that obviously was not the known to me when I started my research and then I kind of developed the why question and tried to answer that maybe very much towards the end of my PhD. So I wanted to look into the subsistence pattern from something uh, from a source that was never been utilized before. So what was my primary source was the residues. Uh, you know, when you use a pot, uh, I don't know if you have ever seen a pot being used. So if you think of a mud clay pot uh, where you pour water, you see the pot gets wet. When you touch the pot, you feel it wet, right? Uh, that's because the water is percolating from the pot and, and it's also keeping the water cold. So in general, any unglazed pot or pots that are not like porcelain, which is highly polished and stuff like that, they have this uh, inherent uh, quality of absorbing whatever is in there in the liquid form. So one thing that they absorb quite well are lipids, uh, the fats in general. Okay, so they absorb obviously the carbohydrates, proteins, lipids and everything, but lipids are something that we have seen preserved quite well, for primarily because they, does not they do not dissolve in water. So water cannot take them out of the pottery. They, if they are there, they are there. So fats are, for general people, is like oils, fats, waxes, um, all these things come under fat lipids and, and then there's the 
the basic unit of it is fatty acid so we can study the fatty acid also the lipids in their complex forms also sometimes can present preserve in archaeological settlement so by looking into the lipids then i would be able to reconstruct the kind of food that were cooked in the vessel okay because now we have a lipid profile we can also do isotopes and stuff like that then i know what the kind of food that were stored or preserved uh, or served or processed in that particular vessel now what sort of extra information would that give me okay so what are the primary information we already had we had obviously archaeozoological remains so that are all the bones that human have consumed are there <coughs> we have plant remains mostly in the form of charred grains that are already there so we know what were their kind of staple grains and stuff like that what animals they consume uh, we also have roasted marks on the roasting marks or the size of the bone would tell me you know if they were made in small pieces to kind of boil if they were large pieces or so they were roasted if there were charred marks on the bone indicating roasting or if there are other taphonemic marks in the bones that would indicate boiling uh, you know and then grains if the grains were charred and versus if the grains were <coughs> made into flour and then they were used so all sorts of things information we already had now a few information we did not have and that's what exactly i wanted to know because i wanted to reconstruct human animal behavior through looking into the subsistence okay now why do i need to reconstruct human animal behavior in the first place because uh, because that would indicate again as i said that you know we need to understand how human were thinking how they are behaving how they are employing their resources for all sorts of activities so if we understand how human animal relationship we would know how they are exploiting animals we would know how they are raising their animals we would know if there are any resources that are specifically assigned to raising the animals or if they are led to raise uh, free what role animal played in their diet what type of animal parts played the major role in their diet and and why okay if there are certain occasions that some animals played a role certain occasions some other animal part played a role you know some animals were processed in some way some animal processed in some other way what were the other plant things that they have consumed like let's say if they had a lot of oily nuts or oily seeds that they consumed so that would also leave a lot of fat so that would kind of give you a sense of the human environment interaction in general and then you would know how environment modified the human how human modified the environment basically so we have that capacity right so so that was one of the question is how human were modifying their current environment or how to what extent human were dependent on their current environment to raise the animals or to manage their animals so these were some of the bigger question to finally understand the interaction system that were happening within the region and i only did a part of it okay now coming back to the research so so then i was like okay fine so let's go and look into the food and then figure out uh, what what are the things so that was the question is i came up with and then uh, my research had two different parts one is to understand animal consumption looking into the pottery residues and understand animal herding practices by looking into the isotopes in animal remains okay briefly explain the topic you are made up of what you are eating and what you are where you are okay your chemical signature would clearly indicate what you are eating or chemical signature within your body what you are eating and where in geology geologically where you are situated okay so so uh, we can look into the isotopes uh, of different uh, molecules uh, or different atoms and then uh, we would be able to tell that you know okay uh, this is the kind of herding practice they have this is the kind of environment that they lived on or this is the kind of foraging practices they have or this is the kind of migration pattern these animals would have these are the three main things i wanted to do understand from the isotopes and then from the lipid residues so i did my study and what i found is very interesting is that earlier people have argued that during the indus period the animals were extensively herded by or managed by human at the during the harappan period so what does that mean is that you know they were they were fed in a very controlled manner they were not uh, let to roam randomly and eat whatever they can that was one of the argument that came before me and and then when i did my research what i found is that at my site yes definitely some control feeding was there but animals were also allowed to play to roam freely 
and consuming whatever was there in the vicinity of, of the site. So what I found is that, you know, during, at my site at least, the feeding was kind of, you know, they were controlled to some extent whenever, and they were more like regional, seasonally varied. So when they had agricultural fodder, they would feed the animals agricultural fodder. When there were no agricultural fodder, they would let the animals roam around and eat whatever they want. Okay. Now that's a very opposite kind of a practice that, you know, the other author have suggested. Now, whether it is two different practices between these two different types of settlements, because I mine is very smaller settlement versus there is a very slightly bigger settlement, is a different question altogether. And, and that we don't have the answer. Or is it, you know, a very size specific, is very specific to my settlement only and how they have managed their animal, depending on how many animals and stuff they had. Also, similarly, at the bigger side, we see cattle, specifically cattle coming from multiple locations. They were not only raised locally, but they were also getting animals from, from different places. And there was another study before that, that also found, that's primarily focused on migration of human and animal. Uh, they also found that, you know, cattle is one of the animals that kind of moved with human. So uh, during the Harappan time, there were like females coming from different places, getting married to different people, and then they were moving. And along with the female, there were also cattle that were moving. So cattle were coming from different areas, at least at the bigger settlements. But beam, now the question is, my side being small, was it that reason that, you know, the cattle and the sheep goat that were raised at that site were regional, locally raised. So they don't have a varied sort of values that indicate that they were coming from somewhere else. Now, that could be just a part of the story because, you know, again, I haven't analyzed everything. So there could be some cattle that are coming from there, but that's kind of thing what it is showing. Now, in terms of animal consumption, um, and there is a way you would know if animals were consumed for meat versus if animals were consumed for milk versus if animals were utilized for other secondary purposes. So what would be the secondary purposes? Exploiting wool, uh, using the animals for traction, all sorts of things. Not leather. Okay? Leather is a primary consumption because you have to kill the animal. So by looking into the mortality profile of the animals, the age at death, you would know if animals were primarily consumed for meat or for secondary products. Okay. For secondary products, you would need an older animal, right? Because uh, in order to exploit milk, you need an adult animal. For traction, you need an adult animal. So you'll see a lot of old animal in your assembly. Uh, versus if you extensively exploiting them for meat, then you'll see very young animals, right? Because because we all have said, hey, give me the tender meat and, and you know, uh, give me the young animal. Because young animals are primarily tender. That's that's like early adult to uh, to adolescent kind of the age group but but secondary product would be a lot of old animals but if they were extensively used for dairy there would be a lot of young male that will get slaughtered okay that's just because there's no role of a male cattle in a dairy industry right uh, they just need like one or two males just to maintain maintain the balance in the herd but at Harappan's uh, settlement, we don't have uh, this age-specific data, age and sex-specific data. We have age data, but not sex-specific data. So we did not know the cattle that were killed early in their age, whether they were male or they are female. But at the same time, we don't see a clear dairy practice because we don't see 50% cattle lived past their adulthood and 50% cattle died in their young age. Because in a natural sense, you would expect... Uh, equal number of male and female okay whenever there are progenies you that's what you'll explain no? it will it may change it can get 40 percent 60 percent but it would not be like 99 percent and one person then there is a problem right so so that means if we just look into the mortality profile of the animal we would expect if they are dairy that at least 50 percent or between 30 to 50 percent of the cattle will be dead in the first year of life because the uh, whoever is doing the dairy industry they don't need it but we don't see that trend so we know cattle were exploited for secondary product. We did not know what sort of secondary product. Okay. On the other hand, we know sheep goat were used for primarily for meat by looking into the mortality profile. But again, that's not a direct evidence. Okay, that's just the mortality profile. So this is the question that I took and I tried to understand it from the ceramic residues. Okay, because there are isotopic signatures and that we already established earlier by looking into the animal isotopes that looking into the isotopes of the food residues would be able to say whether it's coming from cattle or whether it is coming from sheep goat. 
at the same time by looking into the lipid residues and their isotopes we would also know if it is meat or if it is milk okay you would also be able to tell if it is fish if it is excuse me if it is other plant products but that was not my intent and although i did that but then it is not part of the main argument it's just a extra bonus that i got along with uh, so what i found is that there were a lot of dairy consumed at that site and interestingly all the dairy that were consumed at that site were coming from cattle they were not coming from sheep and goat whereas sheep and goat and other animals other than cattle so that those are uh, like uh, you know pigs and birds and stuff like that they were the primary source of meat at least the kind of meat that were processed in a pottery vessel okay there were cattle meat as well but they were few in number compared to the sheep goat meat now that that could be two reasons for that one that is that cattle were not the primary source of meat it's understandable cattle is big you need a large family for uh, to feed a, to eat a complete cattle so it is more beneficial to sacrifice them in ceremonial purposes and we have evidences of that you know that cattle were primarily chosen for ceremonial purposes as a primary source of meat uh, but then for a regular day of eating you would never choose a cattle because then you would lock lose a lot of, of you, you know you'll waste a lot of meat rather the, whereas goats a small goat a young a baby goat is kind of uh, good for a family of 10 15 people so so that could be one of the reason the other reason could be is that you know <clears throat> cattle meat were processed in some different way so they were probably roasting a lot of cattle meat that is also possible so when you roast meat then you don't necessarily use a pottery vessel so there is no point of you know, finding uh, there is no way you'll find there is you but also there is also other possibilities that sampling bias so the samples kind of i had indicated me that although they were randomly selected but then there is definitely sampling bias so i have never got to the samples which had a lot of cattle but even even other studies that were done after me as well they also haven't found a lot of cattle meat so it is likely that either cattle were ceremonially consumed primarily or in in ritualistic instances or cattle were consumed in uh, processed in some different way which does not involve pottery vessels okay but the interesting finding was a dairy and the dairy was coming from cattle because not only that it indicates the usage of that animal but also also indicates the earliest usage of dairy because there is <coughs> a huge uh, you know theoretical work going on whether uh, secondary animal products played any role in the development of complex societies because again as i told you earlier about the resources so secondary product also can produce resources a lot of resources because you don't have to kill your animal you can exploit it till it is kind of dead right so you can over exploit any animal and you are seeing that how we are, we are over exploiting animals nowadays as well so so there is this argument so right now we only have direct evidence of dairy consumption in entire south asia coming from the harappan period well is that the oldest no that's a known oldest date there could be people before harappans were also consumed dairy we don't have that data yet so that was the my primary findings okay now the theoretical path that i went from this finding is that you know the regional raising of cattle exploiting a lot of dairy which kind of provide you resources and and uh, because at the site of kotata badli we don't see evidence of craft production which is very common at many harappan settlements so they were not producing craft there were also little evidence of that they were agriculturally producing something they were probably doing some form of household agriculture but not large scale agriculture so they were probably not cultivating a lot of grain so my argument is that dairy was likely to be the primary source of resource that they were exchanging and maintaining a local economy okay and and then they were definitely raising their animals locally so they were permanently settled at the site so they were not like nomad pastorals or anything they were they were participating in regional activities and stuff like that uh and then also because they show some sort of cultural differentiation or in terms of material culture compared to the harappans quote and quote and there comes the center and periphery theory that i have proposed uh, and you know how that played a role in the interregional interaction and but this kind of indicates that you know these are the kind of resources that were likely to be used and exchanged uh, 
in order to get other social benefits, social and economic benefits from the neighboring settlements, okay, which could be either in terms of you know labor, which could be in terms of other resources that were not produced or available to the occupants of the settlement, but that would also be you know other resources, say for example agricultural products and stuff like that. Also that that you know when you contribute something, you are part of the community, right? You are part part of the system. So you need to contribute something other than that you are not part of that corporate group. So this is kind of the goods that you would be using in terms of be into the corporate group. And that and this kind of shifts our idea uh, from a very craft specialist Harappan identity that we have given from a top-down view, you know, very civilized settlements, uh, civilized uh, civilization, civilized civilization, but yeah, very, very standardized things. And, you know, uh, they have measurements, craft production, long distance trade, all sorts of, but then we forgot to talk about this very rudimentary part of economy, which was the building block of this civilization, which is the building block of this regional connection, regional network. And there comes my theory of uh, this cooperative regional interaction, where, you know, it is not that, uh, you know, I come and exploit you. Is that okay? This is my part of the contribution, and that is your part of the contribution. And like nobody is exploiting anybody. Everybody is, you know, contributing to them. This is kind of an economy which is very important to maintain the regional economy in the absence of a bureaucratic government, in the absence of someone sitting at Harappa or Mohenjo-daro or Rakhigarh or Bholapura controlling these regional groups, which we see at a later time. This is more of you know coming together and and like. So, you help me, I help you. So, that's my theory. Is that right? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. That's my theory. I mean, uh, I mean, this, this, this overview of sort of how the, the idea came in and, and how you collected the samples and so on, that, that's super interesting. There were so many things that we wanted to ask you. Due to the want of time, I think we would, we would like to wrap soon. So, I just wanted to ask you one question. Uh, when you're doing these things and when you're actually like asking so many questions and there are so many possible assumptions and ideas that you can go along, how does one sort of uh, stop themselves for, from, from over-interpreting things? Is there like, is there like a practice that you have to, have to kind of your, remind your brain about or, or is there something that you, that you know as like a professional, I don't know, uh, training, it's a part of a professional training that you have. Or something of that sort. Like, how do you how do you sort of wrap things up in a way that you're not over interpreting, but you're still enough that you've used all the ideas and it's all like a like a tiny like a like a proper little tight bow. I, I think I think that's the problem of every PhD student in this world. Is <laughs> when should I stop my research? At what point that is enough? I would say you probably have more personal reasons to stop that research than your academic reasons. There is no concrete answer is that, you know, when you stop your research, because questions are never ending. You ask a question, you do a research, that leads to another question. That leads to another question. So question would be never ending. And if you want to, nobody in their lifetime can answer all the questions. So, so one rule of the thumb, I believe, is that you ask a question. Once you get a satisfactory answer of that particular question, stop asking another question. Put those extra questions into your future research. You, the question you started with, stick to that. You found the answer. You, you didn't find the answer. Fine. That's end. End it there. Uh, I think I had. A, I have a funny story of finishing my research. I did not write a thesis. Okay, so my PhD was not a thesis PhD. My PhD was a three-paper PhD thesis. So I had to convince my uh, supervisor that you know, I am not writing a thesis. I hate writing. I am not writing a thesis. I write three papers. Um, and then that's my thesis. So there I drew my life. I have questions like I'm still working on materials that I have collected during my PhD and still analyzing them. So, you know, there is there is no end to it. So, yeah, you draw your own boundary. Whatever reason it is, I'm getting old. Okay, finish my PhD. Okay, I have a, I have a child, finish my PhD. I don't have money, finish my PhD. So I, that's what I'm saying. Like you have more personal reasons to finish your PhD than you have more academic or academic reason to finish your PhD. So yeah, I think that's the problem for everyone, anybody in the PhD. Mm -hmm. uh, would you have any concluding notes uh, relating to the state of the field in India currently? And what exactly is the structure like currently 
um, I, I mean, what what exactly is the structure like at present, and what does an everyday look like for an archaeologist, even perhaps in context also with 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 popular culture ideas and so on? How 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 true are they, and how how is it like really when when you when you live that? What I would want uh, to give a a concluding statement from from my side, it would be that you know in India. we are still developing this field okay this field has not been developing especially when we consider archaeological science and archaeological theory they they both sucks at this point of time and we really need to work as group collaborate with people collaborate with scientists collaborate with theorists to kind of come up with very strong theoretical backing of scientific facts that's what we need in india right now so i would ask my students if whenever i start my phd student is that do interdisciplinary research don't focus yourself doing just archaeological research because archaeology is interdisciplinary human is interdisciplinary you can research on a human or a society from one point of uh, one point of view so broaden your point of view do research and then only will get new information so theoretical backing we are lacking so we need very strong theoretical backing very strong interpretative archaeology it may sound you know like uh, slightly in you know, a overboarding with the data which is also fine like you can go overboard with the data you it's your theory at the end of the day when you are talking about theoretical people will agree or disagree right so don't think that it's your child it's just a theory that you came up with so if somebody disagree with to that it's is perfectly fine because that's just a theory but then you have to have this interdisciplinary aspect now the second point is um you know when we talk about movie i know many people would say that you know uh, the movie did not represent archaeology properly no a movie doesn't have to represent archaeology properly that's not the role of a movie then you make a documentary if you're making a movie you have you have scope to go wild you have scope to say unwanted theories and you know get your imagination you know if if i tell you all about harappans in an academic way they sound they would sound dry like they wouldn't sound very exciting you would just think oh they are just normal village people and and nobody would want to watch that kind of a movie so i want to go to cinema hall to watch a movie and come back uh, being entertained right archaeology is a discipline it's not an entertaining media so you cannot entertain someone with academics very very difficult so i don't have problem go wild with art, with archaeology and you know with now cgi and all i would say go wild come up with concepts if you inspire archaeologists to build a high tech laboratory that would look like that why not so inspired us surprise us in any way you can this was a conversation from the fourth season of zeroing in the science podcast where we are delving into the ideas of a city tracing along the shores of the evolutionary history of human civilizations We would like to thank Professor Kalyan Shekhar Chakrabarti for this exciting discussion and the curious conversation that took us along through a journey across millennia and what we know of them as people who belong. On behalf of the Zero Indian team for this episode which included Muskan Garg, Sahil Mitchell along with the season team for Zero Indian and I am Naman Jain. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. We'll be back with a new episode along the same ideas with further interesting questions and conversations. with eminent indian scientists and researchers from across the world if you have any suggestions you can visit us on zeroingin.org or write to us on zeroingin@gmail.com and follow us on our instagram and facebook handles for regular updates until the next time